Welcome to episode 10 of the HPBA podcast. Prior to getting started with this episode, we have a few announcements from the HPBA. First, the deadline to apply for leadership positions and for the HPBA Academy is January 15th. Deadline to apply for the Junior Surgeons Committee is December 18th. The annual meeting has been moved to August 2nd through 5th, and the call for abstract deadline is February 12th, 2021. For this episode, Tim and I had the honor of sitting down with a true legend in the world of HPB surgery, Dr. Steven Strasberg. Dr. Strasberg is a Pruitt Professor of Surgery in the section of HPB surgery and GI surgery at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. As we discussed briefly in the episode, Dr. Strasberg did his training at the Toronto General Hospital and the University of Toronto. He also spent two years as a research fellow at Boston University. As most of our audience will know, Dr. Strasberg is most well known for the Strasberg classification of bile duct injury, but he has published over 300 peer-reviewed papers covering many aspects of HPB surgery. In this interview, we had a chance to discuss a range of topics around bile duct injuries to include the history behind and development of the critical view of safety, bailout options for difficult cholecystectomy, and finally repair of bile duct injuries. It was really incredible to hear about the development of laparoscopic cholecystectomy and the critical view of safety, things that are so fundamental to modern general surgery from the person who actually lived the history around that. This episode covered so much material that it has something for everyone from a junior general surgery resident all the way up to a practicing HPB surgeon. Anyway, we really appreciated Dr. Strasberg being so generous with his time and really enjoyed this conversation, and I hope you all do too. Without further delay, episode 10 of the HPBA podcast with Dr. Steven Strasberg. Hi everyone, this is Tim and Tim here with the HPBA podcast, and we're extremely fortunate to be able to have the time this morning at the HPBA to... To, to talk with Dr. Steven Strasberg, who needs very little introduction um, from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Um, today we're going to discuss um, kind of the history of uh, bile duct injuries and the critical view of safety as one of our next installments in the Masters series for our podcast. So uh, typically in the Masters series, Dr. Strasberg, we start out by just asking you kind of your story, how you got to where you are, what your training looked like, and uh, what your early career looked like. So how I got started in surgery was, I guess I saw an operation at a movie theater when I was a child and then wanted to become a surgeon almost immediately. And uh, I had the usual cuts and scrapes and nicks as a child and had a few sutures put into my face and thought that that was a wonderful thing to be able to do to sew up a cut with a thread. Uh, I was also very influenced by a wonderful family doctor uh, who looked after us when we were children and uh, in those days family doctors still made house calls. Mm. Uh, and when this doctor came into our house, it was obvious that a very important person was coming. <laughs> uh, my father and mother would stand at the door and let him in and uh, treat him very royally. So for many reasons, and of course, uh, I became very interested in biology as a student, as a high school student. Uh, and then uh, there wasn't anything else that I ever wanted to be but a doctor. And uh, I sometimes think my mother also uh, had a great influence on me in this way uh, to become a physician. So that's how I became a physician and I graduated from the University of Toronto. Uh, and uh, in my second and third years of 
medical school, uh, I was very influenced by how surgeons thought. In those days, I don't know what we do now in medical schools, but in those days we did things called clinics, and uh, four or five or eight students went to the bedside of a patient and were quizzed and taught by a surgeon or an internist. And I really liked the way surgeons thought. Hmm. Between uh, uh, years, uh, I spent time in England at a very uh, famous hospital. Not that it's famous today, but it was famous then because it's where all the major uh, registrars and uh, attending surgeons from London went to look after private patients. It was in South End on Sea, and that sort of cemented everything for me. I definitely wanted to be a surgeon. <laughs> so uh, I enrolled in the surgical training course at the University of Toronto, and five years later uh, finished. Uh, I became interested in the problem of jaundice in post-operative patients, which is not seen that much anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, but in those days, uh, it wasn't all that uncommon to see jaundice in a post-operative patient and not a post-operative patient that was having an operation on the liver or biliary tract necessarily. So I became very interested in that and had some help from wonderful people and got to understand that and wrote a paper about it. And, uh, and I got interested in some other things uh, when I was uh, a resident uh, and started working them up and writing about them. And uh, one of uh, my mentors who was a pathologist, an expert in uh, platelet uh, uh, physiology uh, and pathology helped me a great deal. And uh, one day he said, uh, Steve, you ought to go away and learn how to do research. Uh, and I said, well, but I, I want to be a surgeon. I don't want to do research because in my mind in those days, mm -hmm. research meant being a biochemist or mm -hmm. a pathologist. And he said, well, I got news for you. You're already doing it, but mm -hmm. you don't know how to do it. You're just <laughs> trying to do it. <laughs> and and uh, you can be taught to do it. And so I was at the college meeting and I saw a panel of very eminent uh, surgeons, including uh, J. Engelbert Dunphy and Zollinger, uh, Robert Zollinger. And this was in Atlantic City, because the meetings were often in Atlantic City in those days. Uh, and there was a young surgeon called Richard Egdahl. And I just liked the way he spoke and the way he thought. So I told my chairman that I'd like to do two years of research with Richard Egdahl. He was an endocrine surgeon, but interestingly, it turned out he was working with Donald M. Small, who was a great physical chemist uh, who described the triangular coordinate diagram for cholesterol, solubility, and micelles. And, and so I ended up uh, in Boston for two years at Boston University working with Donald Small and Richard Egdahl. Uh, and then I came back to the University of Toronto. I had an appointment at the University of Toronto before I left. Mm. Uh, they supported me while I was in Boston. <laughs> and uh, I started uh, my lab uh, and started doing research. And in those days, uh, everybody uh, did everything compared to what we do today mm -hmm. uh, in, in university hospitals. Uh, surgeons all did colorectal surgery, 
all abdominal GI surgeries, mm. uh, neck surgery, uh, breast, veins. We all did everything. And I was very interested in getting my lab going. So I thought I had to restrict my uh, surgical work to a smaller area. And I started restricting it just to liver, pancreas, and biliary surgery. There wasn't a lot of liver and pancreas surgery going on. Uh, major liver resections were extremely uncommon. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and same with Whipple procedures. In my residency, I did one Whipple procedure. Wow. wow. Uh, and you have to remember that my residency finished in the late 60s, which was just 25 years after um, the Whipple procedure was uh, described uh, in, as a one-stage procedure in mm -hmm. something like 37 patients, which was 1945. Mm -hmm. wow. So it's just a matter of 20 years after that. F wow. Since then, 50 years have passed. <laughs> yeah. So there's wow. been a lot of uh, uh, advances in the yeah. Whipple procedure. But I think my attending had done one before he, we did the Whipple procedure, and the patient survived amazingly. Wow. Uh, and I'll wander a little bit off topic since I'm talking about the Whipple procedure, but you know the Whipple procedure got very bad press for a while. There was a paper written in uh, 1975, which I believe was published in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons, then called SG&O, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, it was by a famous surgeon from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, Dr. Kreil who basically said there was no point in doing them because the survival was so terrible. And he was really talking about Whipple procedure for adenocarcinoma, the head of the pancreas, mm -hmm. not for other indications. But uh, many people felt that operation shouldn't be done mm -hmm. at all for cancer of the head of the pancreas. So there was a lull in that. <clears throat> but in the 80s, we started up again, slowly, and then, of course, since then, it's been going all the way. All right, that's amazing. Yeah. Well, the obvious reason um, that we wanted to talk to you is getting uh, a little more of a sense about bile duct injuries. That's sort of what you're probably most famous for. Um, so particularly, we wanted to kind of hear the story of where the, how the critical view of safety was uh, developed, how the bile duct, bile duct injury classifications were developed, and sort of what it looked like early on when laparoscopic cholecystectomy was introduced and how many injuries you were seeing and all those kind of things. So as I said, I focused my practice on biliary liver and pancreas surgery and the liver and pancreas surgery grew slowly, but the biliary surgery grew quickly and had a large biliary practice uh, because the people had the thought that well, since he's restricting his practice, he must know a lot about this. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I had a large biliary practice and, and when laparoscopic, when I first heard about laparoscopic cholecystectomy, within an extremely short time, I was fortunate enough to be at a meeting, I can't remember where it was, but it was in Europe, and I met and became friends with Jacques Perissot mm. and spent uh, two or three days talking to him about how to do the operation. Mm. And then uh, I went uh, to New York to see uh, a laparoscopic cholecystectomy and it was being done by a very famous biliary surgeon at the time called Charles McSherry. I don't know if you've ever heard of Charles McSherry, no, but this is one of the th 
things that happens to us. Don't try to be famous because it's not worth it. <laughs> Within a very short time, people forget who you are, except if you're Napoleon or somebody <laughs> like that. Yeah. That should not be your goal. Yeah. Well, Charles McSherry, there were two surgeons working together at the New York Hospital called Glenn and McSherry, and they published in annals. Frank Glenn and Charles McSherry, they published in annals frequently, and they had thousands of open cholecystectomies, and they greatly advanced uh, the performance of, of open cholecystectomy. In those days, you wrote papers sort of freehand, and you could say what you wanted in the papers. And mm -hmm. uh, but but that's what they were providing were pearls and perils. Right. Yeah. Uh, the tips that we all want to hear about how to do an operation from someone that's done six thousand of them, and, right. and they like had done podcast. six thousand. Yeah. So uh, Charlie was just doing his third or fourth. A laparoscopic cholecystectomy hmm. and I went down to New York and watched him do it went back down to Toronto and did our first laparoscopic cholecystectomy in late 89 or around there mm -hmm. and we had three surgeons in the operation and it took us four hours to do the operation <laughs> but we did it and uh, we gained experience in it slowly A after we had done uh, about a uh, hundred which was very quick. In two or three months, we had done a right. hundred right. uh, lap coles. Uh, we decided that we, as a university, we better learn how to teach it. And the chairman appointed me as the head of the teaching of laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So yeah. we set up a lab where we could do the operation on pigs. And then the following day, we'd have a two-day course. The second day was uh, uh, three lap coles. So the surgeons would scrub with us. In those days, there also wasn't a lot of problem with having a surgeon right. come into your hospital and scrub with you. Yeah. They would watch us do it, but scrub with us, be the assistants. Yeah. And uh, so after a few weeks, we trained uh, enough people in the university so that we could run a course on laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Wow. And we did that for two years. Every two weeks, we had a course for two years, for two days, every two weeks. We had hmm. surgeons from all over Canada. We ran it about 75 times. Wow. Uh, and, and then we would go out, uh, if the people were close enough to each other, to us, within 50 miles of Toronto, we'd go out and operate with them. Wow. Uh, and do some lap coles with them. And if they were further than 50 miles from Toronto, we would not train them unless they agreed ahead of time to do two, two surgeon operations for their first 20 operations. So we wow. actually did not have a lot of biliary injuries from that, but we had some, uh, and they started coming in, and then they came in from people who we hadn't trained. Yeah. And we were mm -hmm. basically inundated with uh, biliary injuries. By this time, I had transferred down to Wash U in St. Louis, mm -hmm. and uh, we had 20 or 30 uh, biliary injuries uh, within a, rel a relatively short time. Wow! Wow! And no, just out of curiosity, were you when you first started doing these laparoscopic? Were you doing top down, uh, or were you sort of trying to mimic the the open technique? I, you know, I read in some of what you've written about this that the problem was early on you would take the gallbladder off the off the liver first and then try to mimic the open technique and it would twist on you and things like that and that's where the critical view sort of came from. Well, 
the that's a uh, I, I probably didn't explain it properly uh, when I when I wrote it but what we what we would do is isolate the cystic duct and cystic artery okay and then uh, take it down from above right uh, right but but we didn't take it off the cystic plate from below that came later right so we took it off from above and said okay here we are we're mimicking the open technique because we've got this hanging by two yeah uh, cystic structures now we can clip them but as we did that it it became hard first of all it's not that easy always to take the gallbladder off the cystic mm -hmm. plate uh, when you have the cystic artery and duct intact but uh, when we did get it off, uh, we, we were holding the gallbladder in those days. We didn't have the same instruments. We have the same clip appliers. To get the thing straightened out, uh, it wasn't easy to do always. So we decided that the better thing to do is to mimic the open technique, but change it slightly and take the gallbladder off the bottom of the cystic mm -hmm. plate mm -hmm. to the point where we were sure that uh, it was the cystic plate see enough of it, a third of it, so oh, no doubt about it, we're like halfway up mm -hmm. the gallbladder, and then divide the cystic structures and then take it off from below the rest of the way. Uh, and that mimicked the open technique, but uh, uh, was easier. Now while I'm saying that, I have seen uh, a couple of times where surgeons told me they saw the cystic plate and um, <coughs> and they injured the bile duct. And how this happens is that they get onto the left side of the common hepatic duct in their dissection. And this happens because the common hepatic duct is fused to the side of the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. There's no more mm -hmm. uh, triangle of, uh, no more hepatocystic triangle. Right. So they get on the left side <clears throat> and uh, <clears throat> they get under the uh, a, a common hepatic duct hmm. and lift the whole porta hepatis up yeah. and they see the gallbladder I'm sorry they see the liver yeah. uh, of segment 5 and they say that's a cystic plate and so that's getting way out of the way mm -hmm. but it's possible uh, right. for them to see some liver so uh, we, we've written about that and we showed that in uh, photographs while we were doing a Whipple we mobilized the, d the duck because we had to and then took pictures of what that looks mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. and that was published in the, in 2013 in Journal of American College of Surgeons and it's in the video that's on YouTube uh, from that paper. So one thing I, I saw in the writing about this is do uh, you think that could be avoided if you make sure that you start above the sulcus of Rovier. So that imaginary line from the bottom of segment four to the sulcus of Rovier, you dissect above that, and hopefully you would then avoid that potential issue of being behind the, behind the, the common duct as well. I think that's... Or do you think it's just going higher up in, into the cystic plate to make sure that you're in the right spot? Right. I think that sulcus of Rovier to segment four is very important mm -hmm. and something that we should always look at uh, while we're operating, especially in a difficult cholecystectomy, because it's very helpful. Sometimes it's hard to see the sulcus of Rouvier, yeah. but when you can see it, uh, I think it's very helpful. I think the other thing that tells you you're looking at the liver is that it's liver and it's not cystic plate. Right. They look different. One yeah. is whitish, Fair enough. Yeah. and yeah. one is the, the surface of the liver. And the other thing is, is that when you mobilize the 
gallbladder off the cystic plate. The opening is vertical. The opening uh, around the gallbladder mm. is vertical, mm. whereas mm. if you lift the bile duct up, the opening, it's a slit, a horizontal yeah. slit. Yeah. So nice. that should clue you into that. Wow. So, great. so when starting with the advent of laparoscopic cholecystectomy, starting to see these biliary injuries, how did you come to define the critical view of safety and, and what's the history behind that and then the application of that? Well, the, the critical view, we came to the cr idea of the critical view of safety gradually. Initially, we thought maybe that we could use the infundibular technique and that would be good enough. But as I saw how biliary injuries were starting to occur, I realized that we had to have a much more rigorous method of uh, mm -hmm. identification, a, a secure method of identification. And so, um, and as I've already told you, that we, we didn't want to take the gallbladder totally off the liver. Right. So that's where the critical view of mm -hmm. safety comes mm -hmm. from. We actually described the critical view of safety as a, and showed a picture of it in an earlier publication than the one we used the word critical view of safety. But it shows you how powerful terminology is. I've been mm -hmm. always interested in terminology in surgery. Right. And it shows you how powerful terminology is because that phrased critical view of safety for whatever reason caught on yeah. and people really started citing and talking about the critical view of safety mm -hmm. whereas uh, that other description which was just a photograph and some words nobody ever cites that paper it's I don't just, think it's ever been cited once. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, uh, just for the younger listeners for you know a junior resident we should probably define what the critical view of safety is so from the horse's mouth, it'd be, it'd be good to yeah. hear exactly what yeah. that means to you. Because I think, you know, there is some people talk about a critical view of safety, but they don't have all the elements there. And I think that's kind of one of the issues yeah. out in the community. Right. And I'll talk about one of the shortcomings of the critical view of safety as well. Uh, so the critical view of safety has three elements to it. The first element is that you need to clean the hepatocystic triangle of fat and fibrous tissue. Second element is take the base of the gallbladder off the cystic plate from below so that you're exposing about a third of the cystic plate. And the third element is there can be two and only two structures going into the gallbladder. Uh, and, and that gives you secure identification. Now secure does not mean perfect, mm -hmm. okay? And I think that's very, uh, I think that's very important. Uh, there's no method which is 100% secure, but it does do very well. One of the shortcomings of the critical view of safety is that a lot of people have caught on to the word but not onto the method. Mm -hmm. And it's not unusual for us to have a patient sent to us who has uh, had a biliary injury and the surgeons talks about the critical view of safety. But if you read the operative note, what they've done is gotten around the common bile duct mm -hmm. and found no other structures but traced the common bile duct up towards the gallbladder and when the, when the uh, uh, common hepatic duct is stuck to the side of the gallbladder and, and, the, and the common bile duct is small, it looks like the cystic duct. Mm -hmm. yeah. So um, uh, they say critical view of safety, but they haven't gotten the critical view of safety. And in a very important paper, one of the landmark papers, and if you want me to say something to junior residents, I'll say, I'll say this, read it, Davidoff. Annals of Surgery 1992, if you want to understand biliary injury. They had 20 videos showing the, how the injury occurs. And that's how this classic injury occurs. The surgeon surrounds the common bile duct, traces it up to the gallbladder, 
says there's a cystic duct, cuts it, and the injury occurs. Mm -hmm. That's the first part of the injury. Then they trace on the left side of the common hepatic duct, divide the common hepatic duct, often injuring the, the, the right hepatic artery at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's how the chunk of common hepatic duct gets removed. And if you look at those videos, and I've never seen them, but they show pictures of them. And I tried to get them, but you, you know, in this day and age, people don't keep videos around for 20 years, particularly that may have some medical legal yeah, implications. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you can see and how that injury occurs. The injury occurs by surrounding the common bile duct and thinking it's the cystic duct and dividing it. That's the mm -hmm. first step in the injury. And we asked ourselves, how does that occur? Uh, after we wrote our critical view of safety paper in 1995, we felt that that would be the end of common bile duct injuries. But in 2000, we were even getting more injuries right. to repair. And mm -hmm. we started trying to go inside the surgeon's mind by reading the operative notes. Yeah. And so. when you read the operative notes, you, you see the, them describe the infundibular technique that the, that the cystic duct is flaring and opening into the infundibulum yeah. of the gallbladder. And I've had surgeons, uh, not, not a few surgeons, a good number of surgeons tell me that they did not injure the bile duct because they only divided the cystic duct. And this is, of course, post-operatively yeah. when we talked about it. Yeah. And I've had to explain to them how they were fooled, what the mirage was, what the... And that was published in 2000, it was called the Hidden Cystic Duct Syndrome. Because mm -hmm. the cystic duct gets hidden, right. gets sucked up in the inflammation. Mm -hmm. Kind of getting back to uh, critical view of safety, what do you, what's your advice for when you, know, you cannot achieve the critical view of safety, when there's too much inflammation or the common bile duct is kind of plastered to the infundibulum? Um, you know, you've written about kind of bailout options and things. What, what, in 2020, what's your advice for, for that situation? So for a long time, uh, we taught surgeons to, when, when we couldn't find the critical view of safety, to open the patient and do mm -hmm. an open operation. Mm -hmm. And of course, uh, we, we had a lot of experience in that, but what we found over time is that um, younger surgeons weren't getting that experience in residency training and felt uncomfortable mm -hmm. uh, trying to do the operation that way. Uh, so uh, we started thinking about uh, doing lesser operations. And interestingly, in that time, which was just like seven or eight or nine years ago, the terminology in uh, doing subacute cholecystectomy was mm -hmm. very confusing. And even though there were two systematic reviews written in uh, between 2010 and 2015, reading those systematic reviews was also somewhat difficult because you were wondering, well, what exactly did they do? What are they describing? Now, um, here's a little history about uh, Subtotal, I think I might have said subacute, yeah. subtotal mm -hmm. cholecystectomy. The first one was done in 1898 by Hans Kerr, the famous uh, German surgeon, famous uh, gallbladder surgeon. Mm -hmm. And there are descriptions in the literature in 1935 by Estes from uh, Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, uh, on how to do a subtotal uh, fenestrating cholecystectomy. Mm -hmm. He didn't call it that, he called it a partial cholecystectomy, I believe. Mm -hmm. In 1953, from British Columbia, there was an excellent paper. And then the literature goes dry. 
for 30 years. There's nothing. Mm -hmm. I can tell you, I've looked it up. <laughs> there's, there's no paper with the term uh, uh, difficult cholecystectomy or subtotal cholecystectomy mm -hmm. for 30 years. Wow. And what I think happened was this. And by the way, Rodney Mango, the famous British surgeon, described a way to do partial cholecystectomy in 1938. And then he, in his famous book, Abdominal Operations, which he had mm. six or seven um, reiterations of, yeah. or iterations of, and now it's, it has American authors, American editors, I mean. But in that mm. book, the method wasn't described. You can't find subtotal mm. cholecystectomy in Rodney Mango's abdominal operations. Mm. What, really? what I think happened was that a few people, after a subtotal cholecystectomy, developed persistent biliary fistulas because they couldn't do ERCPs. Mm. And think about it, in 1960, persistent biliary fistula in a patient who'd already had a difficult operation, what did that mean? That's that me meant deal. going back in yeah. uh, and uh, having a very difficult operation to do. Well, nothing will cure you faster than having <laughs> yeah. an operation faster than that, having to do reoperative surgery because right. you didn't get the gallbladder out. So then when the, the next uh, uh, appearance of subtotal cholecystectomy was in 1983 when it was uh, published from South Africa by uh, Bornem and Terblanche, and they described the operation. I don't know if they even knew the literature because they described. <coughs> excuse me. Yeah. I don't know. <coughs> I don't know if they even knew the literature, because they basically described it as a new procedure. Mm. Uh, but they described what they described was a subtotal fenestrating cholecystectomy. Now, over the years at WashU, we had had some people have partial cholecystectomies and they came in with symptoms from the remnant gallbladder. Right. The partial cholecystectomy that was being done was an operation in which the gallbladder was partially removed and what left was left behind was closed. Mm -hmm. So you still mm -hmm. had part of the gallbladder, it was able to function like a gallbladder, it could make stones and cause biliary colic. Right. So we call that, when we started to straighten out this terminology in the Safe Cholecystectomy Task Force, and this paper was published in 2016 in the uh, Journal of American College of Surgeons. Um, we called that operation reconstituting. Mm. So we wanted to separate it from another operation in which the free wall of the gallbladder was excised, the parts on the cystic plate was left behind, ablated, and the cystic duct was closed internally or left open with a drain, mm -hmm. if you couldn't see it. Right. So we had two kinds of cholecystectomies, subacute fenestrating cholecystectomy and subacute reconstituting cholecystectomy. Mm -hmm. Now in 2016 at WashU, we also made the conscious decision to switch to that operation to teach residents how to get it through a difficult cholecystectomy. And we've been through a learning curve in this area because we didn't do that operation right. very often or not at all. We, and if we ever did it, we did three a year in a service that did three or 400 gallbladders mm -hmm. a year, we would do three uh, partial cholecystectomies, mm -hmm. which was, that's what it was called then. And, and half of them would be one type and half of them would be the other. Well, in 2016, we greatly accelerated the subacute, sub subtotal cholecystectomy and 
when we did that, we tried to do them laparoscopically at first, not very successfully, and we settled on the fenestrating type because we thought we, that would not result in a second operation. Mm -hmm. But we're going to present our results here tomorrow on our first 71. Mm -hmm. Uh, and there have been papers from Duke, and there have been papers from uh, UCSF uh, on this subject. Uh, and gradually we've improved our laparoscopic rate, that we're able to do it laparoscopically. We're at about 65% now. Uh, and virtually all of them are fenestrating, virtually all of them are started laparoscopically. Hmm. And what a difference between doing a hard total cholecystectomy uh, after opening and doing this operation laparoscopically in the post-operative course mm -hmm. of the patient. Yeah, right. It's just like a lap coli, wow. except they have a drain. Yeah. And the drain isn't turning out to be much of a problem. Mm -hmm. In our early experience, we, we had, uh, uh, well, in our, in, in our first experience that we're going to describe, we did six ERCPs in 58 patients who had mm -hmm. uh, fenestrating cholecystectomies. But they were done early because we were on a learning curve and mm -hmm. they were done before day five except for one. And we're finding that these little leaks in asymptomatic yeah. patients will close by day seven or 10. The patients come home with a drain, uh, they come back in after two weeks and there's mm -hmm. nothing in the, right. uh, in the So bag. what's your, now what's your trigger to do ERCP? Is, it, is there a drain volume that makes you worry or do you just give them 10 days and, and they're all gonna kind of dry up? So the most important thing is symptoms. Of okay. course, the patient's not doing well, has got a fever, and we've had to drain a couple of bilomas, two okay. bilomas, I believe then of course we'll do ERCP then. Sure. If they're asymptomatic, the only reason we would do an ERCP before about two weeks is just high volume drainage. Okay. If mm -hmm. they're draining three or yeah. 400 cc's a day and it's becoming a quality of life issue, then we would do it. Got it, drying them out. That's great, so yeah. you know, take the top off, ablate the back wall, remove all the stones. If you can close the cystic duct, you close it. If not, you just leave a drain. Leave a drain. So there's two ways that have been described to do it. The first way, the way we do it, and it's a classical way described by Estes and McElmoyle, is you expose the gallbladder, just like you're starting a gallbladder operation. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the most difficult part of the operation is exposing the gallbladder, because yeah. it can really be stuck to surrounding structures, mm -hmm. and you can potentially have fistulae and so forth. Sure. So exposing the gallbladder laparoscopically can be very difficult. That once a gallbladder is exposed, you make a vertical incision down the length of the free wall of the gallbladder, right in the middle. Unless you've got a zillion tiny stones, then you make a smaller incision so the stones get them, don't get them all out and then go ahead. So then you end up with two flaps when you cut the gallbladder down. Mm -hmm. And so you carve those flaps off at the point that the gallbladder attaches to the liver. Okay. So then you're just left with a back wall. And then <clears throat> if you can see that, and then you look inside the gallbladder, make sure you're down the bottom. Use, uh, I, particular, I, I tend to use a right angle uh, to probe the bottom of the gallbladder to see how much I haven't exposed. And if there's still gallbladder below that level, I'll open it up. <clears throat> you need to be careful uh, on the flap that's on the left side because you don't want to get to the point where the cystic artery comes onto the gallbladder. Mm -hmm. So you leave a little bit of gallbladder there okay. and two or three millimeters and that was uh, described by McElmoyle and we call that the shield of McElmoyle uh, so, so that uh, in his honors because that's an important point mm -hmm. uh, and then a drain.
That's fantastic. That's yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. The other way, as described by uh, uh, Dr. Kirkland of UCSF, she, she takes the gallbladder down from above, divides it transversely, and uh, someone said that makes it look like a toilet seat. And then you can, you can take little uh, circumferential bits of the gallbladder until you're starting to get uncomfortable, and then ablate the inside and uh, leave a drain. Okay. So there's two ways of doing it. So the other thing we wanted to ask you about is uh, the bile duct injury. So when you were seeing these, uh, how did the classification come about? Um, How were you fixing these 20 years ago versus how are you fixing them now? What what has kind of changed over the last couple decades? So uh, as I said, when we started doing laparoscopic cholecystectomy and it spread out into the community, we started seeing bile duct injuries. Mm -hmm. Uh, When I first came to Wash U, I always had two or three bile duct injuries that were waiting to be fixed. Because uh, wow. for a number of reasons, at the beginning, we would do some of these operations delayed. So um, after a couple of years, uh, I, uh, I found that uh, some of the bile duct injuries did not fit well into the bismuth classification, but a number of others did. And so we, we said that we probably should modify the bismuth classification. I've always given Henri Bismuth full credit for his classification. Mm. Uh, and uh, so, so we modified the classification to fit the laparoscopic era. Uh, and in uh, bismuth classification, uh, aberrant duct injuries, right hepatic aberrant duct injuries, were considered to be part of what he called type five, mm-hmm. and type five was an aberrant duct injury w- with a right with a, a, a common hepatic duct injury, a combined injury. So it seemed to me we were seeing so many right injuries, mm-hmm. uh, isolated right hepatic duct injuries, that these needed to be classified separately. Mm-hmm. And also leaks were much more common, and injuries to the side of the bile duct mm-hmm. were much more common. So that's why we came up with that particular classification. There's m- multiple classifications. I think that uh, uh, Strasburg bismuth or bismuth Strasburg classification. We actually call it the Wash U classification. The 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 never name anything after yourself if you want it to be adopted. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, we call it the Strasburg bismuth <laughs> when, I, when I was in training. So, <laughs> so um, we, that, that's how we came to. Uh, develop the classification. Sure. Very interesting. Well, it certainly provided a common language mm-hmm. um, for all of us to, to talk about these things, both educationally and um, when we're fixing them. So thanks for that. I think the classification, it, it's, it's fit in uh, the bile duct injury spectrum of mm-hmm. things. I think its fit is that it's a surgical classification because it tells you what you need to fix. Yeah. Right? That's what why what its strength is. Yeah, yeah it makes sense. And by the way, I once met Henri Bismuth after this was published, and he said to me, Dr. Strasberg, my classification was not a classification of bile duct injuries, it's a classification of biliary strictures. Yeah. And it is. Yeah. But I said, Yes, Dr. Bismuth, but it was very useful in creating a classification of bile duct injuries. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> awesome. We're friends. So uh kind of finally getting into how to fix these things um you know if you have a patient sent to you 
with a you know a flush injury of the common bile duct um, are you guys fixing them right away if they're within the first two days or kind of where's your cut line to fix early versus late and how do you manage that patient that you can't fix right away particularly if they have a vascular injury uh, concomitant those are two very good questions so there's two phases to repair of bile duct injuries. One the preoperative phase and the other is the operative phase. In the preoperative phase, uh, one of the questions you need to ask, are you going to repair it uh, at the time of injury or shortly after, mm -hmm. within a day or two? Are you going to repair it right away or are you going to delay the repair? Right. So the answer to that question in my mind is you're going to repair it right away unless, and there's several unlesses. One unless is it's so complicated that you can't make the diagnosis in the patient that's transferred. In other words, sometimes we get a patient who has a big biloma uh, and you read the operative note and you do the, the uh, MRI uh, and the MRCP and you can't figure out exactly what the injury is, what its level is, because you don't have the anatomical uh, uh, landmarks, you know, the an anatomical view that you need to know where, which ducts have been injured. Um, and so then what we will do then is delay, and there's always a drain left in place. If mm -hmm. there isn't, we put a biloma drain in, yeah. and you wait two weeks. What happens in two weeks is that the biloma shrinks around the drain, and you get a, a cavity, a biloma cavity, which is very small. And what you can do then is retrograde inject mm -hmm. the biloma cavity, and that lights up the whole biliary tree and gives you the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. It also makes PTC feasible, because if you have decompressed bile ducts, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to get a good PTC, and right. sometimes you need to do both sides to know what's going on. Mm -hmm. So uh, the biloma drain almost always uh, can be injected until, but by that time, it's two weeks, it's not a good time to operate. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the other thing that we always do when a patient has a major injury is find out if the arteries or veins mm -hmm. have been injured. Mm -hmm. And if the artery, the main artery which is injured is the right hepatic, of course, 92% of vascular biliary injuries are right hepatic artery injuries. Mm -hmm. if, if the artery has been injured, we don't think it's a good idea to operate early because the bile duct's ischemic, mm -hmm. and, or maybe ischemic. And we find that over a couple of months, what happens is the bile duct dies back mm. to a viable yeah. place. Now, if you are going to do it early, if you say, well, we operate early on people who have uh, biliary injuries and right hepatic, duct, uh, right hepatic artery injuries, then you need to do the anastomosis above the confluence. You need to do it high where there is good blood supply. And that's not always so wise because a left hepatic duct above the confluence can be very small, particularly in a small woman. So that's why we delay. And there's multiple papers in the literature which shows the value of delaying because multiple descriptions of early biliary strictures after repairs that are done when there's been a right hepatic artery injury. Mm -hmm. So the other reason, the third reason we would delay is if the patient's referred at 10 days or two weeks, especially yeah. if they've got a biloma. Sometimes some, the, artery, the duct is clipped, sometimes the duct is clipped, and there's no biloma, and there's, the whole thing's been done laparoscopically. So you have a pretty clear field. You can operate within 10 days or 12 days. 
But if there's a biloma, uh, things get pretty sticky after four or five days. So if a patient comes in at two weeks, we, do, we don't do it. And the other reason is, is that a laparoscopic cholecystectomy can be done on people with multiple comorbidities and uh, so forth, but these big operations should not be in many yeah. cases. So get a patient who's transferred, even if they're ideal in, in the local sense for a laparotomy and a bile duct repair, uh, especially uh, after another operation which hasn't gone that well, and they're in atrial fibrillation, mm -hmm. congestive heart failure, you don't want to operate on that patient. Sure. So those are the four reasons for not operating right away. Otherwise, we try to operate right away. And then, uh, of course, we have to maintain fluid balance uh, in the waiting period and make sure there's no sepsis. So we follow the patients for three months. With, and when, when we do the, uh, the retrograde injection, we, you, we leave a U-tube. So the two ends of the tubes come out of the body. That's completely mm. stable. The tubes can't fall out. Mm. Uh, so we do that, and th that makes a good three months uh, for the patient. So it doesn't mm. need multiple procedures to put tubes back in. And then if we have uh, separated parts of the biliary tree, mm. that is the confluence is gone, it's a very high, high operation, an E5, an E4 injury. Uh, we ask our interventional radiologist to intubate the other side of the liver on the day before surgery. So at the time of surgery, mm -hmm. we have tubes in, is in the isolated parts of the bile ducts. Okay. If we have three parts that are isolated, we generally don't because that's too many tubes, but two parts we will. Hmm. And then at the that's time the of the surgery, there's two parts of, of correcting a bile duct injury at surgery. One is to find all the ducts, and then the second part is to join them to the intestine. And this has been well described in the literature, and we use a hepcuino approach, go down the face of segment four, which can be difficult because of adhesions, uh, lower the hilar plate, mm -hmm. and then it's very nice to have a tube in that duct on the left side uh, to be able to feel it mm -hmm. and, uh, and open the duct. Uh, knowing the biliary anatomy ahead of time is very, very important and uh, very hard sometimes to do. Uh, just to illustrate as one case, I was in the operating room and lowered the hilar plate and there, there was, no sh there was no, nothing there except liver. I kept lowering it, nothing there, there's no ducts. <laughs> and uh, so I did what I sometimes do is I injected the tube, and this is the value of having a tube in every isolated mm -hmm. part, injected the tube, and I saw a little bit of saline squeaking out near the falciform ligament uh, and uh, near the umbilical fissure. Uh, it wasn't falciform ligament, it was at the bottom of the umbilical yeah. fissure mm -hmm. where the uh, portal vein going vertically. Yeah. And I called our ultrasonographer in and said, is there a duct in there? Yeah. And she put the ultrasound on, and there was. <laughs> and this was an amazing anomaly because the common hepatic duct ran through the liver superior to the vertical portion of the portal vein, came out of wow. the liver on the left side of the vertical portion of the portal vein. Wow. Oh my gosh. So that's the <laughs> only time I've ever seen that. I don't even know if it's been described. We, wow. we sh we've shown it. Wow. But uh, 
that was lucky that we were able to find that duct and, and yeah. drain. And then, of course, the second part is meticulous uh, anastomosis. Ruan uh, Y, mm -hmm. by preference, there's a few situations where I do a duodenal anastomosis, anastomosis of the duodenum. Mm -hmm. Knowing how to do that's important because you can have people who've got frozen abdomens mm -hmm. or hugely obese who can't, hard to produce a rule loop. Mm -hmm. Sewing to the duodenum can be a, a good way of doing it, as long as, it, as, long as it's done without tension. That's fantastic. That's Thank you. Yeah. Um, do you now, if you have a complete transection and someone is draining all their biliary volume, uh, how do you manage that patient for two or three months before you can go back? Except in the elderly, uh, they can uh, manage it themselves because it's usually the volume isn't higher than three or four hundred mm. cc. Mm. So a couple glasses of a electrolyte solution, okay. which they can buy in the grocery store, uh, takes care of the problem. The one mm. group that's in danger and real danger mm -hmm. are the elderly. So sometimes we, I mean, we've seen biliary injuries in people who are close to 90 years of age mm -hmm. and who are frail. Uh, and uh, those people have to be watched very closely because it, you don't, it doesn't take very long for them to become symptomatically dehydrated right. if they're uh, not drinking well. So you need to tell that to the family and you need to talk to them about that they should be voiding uh, several times a day as usual and if they're not voiding that's a very bad sign uh, and they need to be come into the ER and, uh, and be evaluated and probably get saline infusions, mm. electrolyte infusions I should say. Great. Well, thank you very much for spending time with us this morning. I think this is going to be a fantastic episode that our, our, our listeners are going to enjoy. What a treat it's been to, to hear about the history. And, and for me, being full circle from Toronto, this is uh, quite a treat. Well, I should tell you now the name Newhook comes into my mind because mm -hmm. I was at the University of Toronto when your dad was a resident. Uh, yes, you were. So I, I remember that name now. Uh, that's, well, I, that's why I grew up knowing your name is from my dad. And I remember um, I interviewed for residency at WashU, and you and Dr. Patterson grabbed my name tag and told me that my dad played on the surgery adult league hockey team when he was a resident. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's amazing um, to come full circle and spend some time with you. Well, thank you, you very much. It's yeah. been fun. Thank yeah, you, sir. Thank I really you, appreciate sir. it.